everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Disciple Makers Podcast by Discipleship.org. I'm your host, Dave Stovall, and I'm so excited to be kicking off a brand new season with you today. This is season 11, and we're starting with Brandon Gendon's speech from our most recent city tour event that we had here in Nashville. By the way, if you didn't make it to that event, go to Discipleship.org. We may be coming to a city near you, so check that out so that you can come out to the next one that we host. In this episode, Brandon talks about a personal story of a tragic car accident and reflects on the challenges that he went through with his family, how it impacted their faith and understanding of disciple-making, and he emphasizes the importance of following Jesus' methodology of disciple-making and the transformative power it can have on people and communities when we follow his methods with grit and commitment. Let's let Brandon challenge us today to keep disciple-making a priority in our lives. Seven years ago today, almost to the minute, my wife and I pulled out of our driveway, uh, headed to watch our two daughters uh, play in a softball tournament. Uh, Both of our daughters at the time, at the time, we're 16 and 14, and they both were being recruited uh, nationally to play Division I college softball. And we were super excited. We, uh, this tournament specifically uh, was one of the largest in the country in Houston, and, and uh, our daughter, Iowa State, was coming, and, and we were expecting a commitment there. And our younger daughter was being recruited by multiple SEC schools and other schools around the country. And this was an exciting time for our family. And as we pulled out of the driveway, we didn't get very far down the road and my wife received a phone call. And I'll never forget it when she answered the phone, I could hear as I was driving, she was sitting in the passenger seat, I could hear the sound of sirens through the phone. And it was a police officer on the phone and the police officer was talking to her and and she was answering the questions and and she hung up the phone and I said, "What, what in the world was that about? And she goes, the girls were just in a car accident. And I said, well, what, I mean, are they okay? And she's like, I don't know, they just told us to go to the, to go to the emergency room and, and, and they told us the hospital and, and so we, we rushed there. And, but the way the police officer had described it, it kind of sounded like they'd been in a fender bender. And so when we got to the hospital and I walked through the emergency room doors, see, in my mind, what I was expecting was our our younger daughter to be standing there and yelling at the older daughter because she had, you know, caused this accident and now they weren't at the tournament and she's really mad because they're not playing softball. That's what I had in my mind. But when I came through the doors and I had at least a dozen police officers looking at me, that changed And I thought, oh my goodness, either they're dead or they killed somebody. And a woman came through the the, the crowd of police officers and she took my hand and she said, are you Mr. Gindin? I said, yes, I am. And she said, you need to follow me. And we went back to the family room and I thought, they're gone. And we'd hardly even sat down. And some of the details for me in my mind are still, they're fuzzy after these years just because of the intensity of the moment. A doctor comes through and he says, now, he says, now, who's, who's the older and who's, and he's asking these questions. He's very blunt. And we're the parents and, and know the older daughter is Emma and the younger daughter is Olivia. And he said, he, he said, okay, he goes, you need to understand something, Olivia, at the time she's 14. He says, I'd give her a 3% chance to live. 
He goes, she has 16 skull fractures. She has a bleed on the brain. She has oxygen on the brain. And he goes, and you need to prepare yourself. She's probably not going to make it. While he was saying that, I could hear in the emergency room, our older daughter screaming, where's my sissy? Where's my sissy? Where's my sissy? And Amber and I ran out to her and we found our older daughter was covered in blood. Her ear had been detached from her head and she's covered in glass cuts. And I sat there with her and Amber ran to our other daughter. And before I could even catch up, they had put her on a helicopter and they were flying our younger daughter down to the trauma center in Houston where she would spend the next couple of weeks. And it was a miracle. She, she hadn't died. She was there and and, and, and in, in intensive care and, and multiple times the doctors would come in and she would come this close to dying and, and, and they would continue to remind us that she's in a coma and we don't know because of the injuries that she had. They told us we can pretty much guarantee you where the brain bleed in her brain is she's going to be blind and, and the way that the side of her head was crushed with 16 skull fractures, she's not going to probably be able to hear. She's probably deaf. Well, days went by. And we waited and she was in a coma for 21 days. And then they sent her to a neuro rehabilitation facility. And we didn't know what we would ever have when she woke up, if she ever would wake up. Now this all occurred two weeks before we planted our church. And see, we had spent the last year pouring into the lives of a handful of couples, discipling them, being intentional in our lives, walking out and living out Jesus's methodology. But I'm telling you, as a pastor, the question came to my mind, it paralleled, gosh, how in the world am I ever gonna do my daughter's funeral? And it was paralleled with how in the world would our church ever survive? Well, as Olivia began to wake up, And doctors would tell us she's going to have to relearn everything again. And she did as she started to wake up and this miracle that was occurring. And it was, you know, it wasn't 3%, but she, she wasn't out of the woods. And she had so much work to do. We started to learn that, that she had to relearn everything. To have a 14-year-old daughter that at one point in her life, she's one of the top recruited kids in the country in softball. She's, she's an incredible catcher to go now we're relearning to talk, relearning to walk, to tie her shoes. I would sit with her for hours and hours and we would work on putting the shoe and retying it. And she would kind of start crying and she would say, dad, I'm like a little baby. And we would start over and we would keep learning and, and we would keep working at it. It took us hours to be able to put two Legos together. And she was relearning these things. And meanwhile, I'm wondering, is our church gonna make it? But see, God was teaching me something. Is that the church should never be built upon a personality other than the Lord Jesus Christ. That the the church shouldn't be built on a program. It's not built on a pastor. That the church is built upon God's Holy Spirit and his word living out his intentional practices of disciple making. And during that time, the 87 days that my wife and I are in the hospital, I watched our church go from 70, 75 people meeting in a backyard to 130 people in groups branching and disciple makers growing. When their pastor really couldn't hardly be there. 
See, our church was learning a grit and a commitment to Jesus' process to see it lived out. And while I was in the hospital, my wife and I were walking through the rehab of our daughter. We were learning something more and more at the time. I didn't want to be learning. But now looking back, I can see it. See, at that time, when she was in the hospital in rehabbing, they began talking to us about a process. This incredible process at the time, I'll be honest with you, I could care less about. But now reflecting back, I learned it and I thought, you know what? This reminds me of something in the church today. They taught us this principle called the four stages of competency. See, in order for us to learn something and the brain to be able to do it and do it with any form of of function takes thousands and thousands of repetitions. It's called the four stages of competency. And I'm going to go over the four stages and then we're going to talk, we're going to look at this and and compare it to the church today. See, the four stages are this. The first is unconscious, uncapable. And what that means is you're not aware of it and you don't know how to do it. So if I were to take one of my sons and we were going to go fly fishing and he didn't know anything about it, he had never seen it, he didn't know what a fly rod looked like, but I just told him we're going to go fly fishing, he would enter into that activity unconscious, incapable. He's not aware of it. He doesn't know how to do it. When Olivia was sitting in the hospital bed and she was putting her shoe on again for the first time, she was unconscious, incapable. She didn't know how to put it on. She didn't know how to, how to tie her shoe. She didn't know. She was unconscious, incapable. But then over time, she became conscious, incapable. She was aware of it. She knew she needed to put on her shoes. She just didn't know how to do it. And it took repetition to where it got to the place to where she could put it on and she could tie it. But it took a lot of work, a lot of thought. I would sit next to her and she'd, she would try and tie the laces and we would work at it and practice and practice and practice and it became unconscious capable. To finally, before we left the rehabilitation hospital, she put on her own shoes, she got out of bed on her own, she walked out in the hallway and she ran out those front doors. She had become unconscious capable. I would put the challenge out and contend to all of, all of us in this room is to ask the question when it comes to making disciples, and I'm talking about the way that Jesus Christ modeled. I, I'm assuming based on this conference, everybody here in the room, we all would agree that Jesus Christ is the greatest disciple maker to ever walk the face of the earth. He's the model. He's the example. That you or I, we don't have the right to substitute in whatever methodology that we want. That's how we got in the trouble that we got in. That we're called to make a disciple the way King Jesus made a disciple. And if we stop and ask the question right now, you ask it of yourself, where am I? Am I unconscious, incapable? Maybe you're conscious, but capable, incapable. I'm aware of it, but I don't know how. Maybe you're just starting to practice this Jesus style of disciple making. I'm conscious of it and I'm capable. Boy, it's taken a lot of work. Awesome, keep at it. But I would propose to all of us that every one of us in in this room, if we would commit ourselves to becoming unconscious capable disciple makers, we would start to align our lives to the principle of as you go. 
It's our lifestyle. See, that disciple-making is who we are. So I think the trouble that we've got ourselves in is we've kind of outsmarted ourselves. We've developed a lot of programs, a lot of different things, and all these, this different stuff in the church, and we've looked for the shiny new pill, and we've looked everything that we can to avoid Jesus' core of disciple-making. And I would contend that if all of us would commit to it, to living it out the way Jesus lived it out, I think our churches would start changing. Our churches would look different. You want to solve the problem with the eldership in your church is start living in community and walking out Jesus' style of disciple making. You want to help your people start to understand what does it mean to be the hands and feet of Christ? Well, it has to start with you investing in and discipling your people to become unconscious capable. See, I think that's what was occurring in the church at first Thess- in, in Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul praises the church. He says, you've changed the whole world. Your whole area of the world has changed. He commends them and praises them for the work that they had done in the midst of persecution, pain. Go read it, chapter one. And he tells them why. He says, you've imitated us as we have imitated Christ. Church, let's stop trying to innovate and start imitating. We don't need to innovate new ideas. We need to imitate something very old. And to learn and to get back to Jesus' style of disciple-making because disciple-making has to become who we are, not just something that we do. A lifestyle within our churches. And to stop right now and to go, what does that look like in a program? What does that look like in a curriculum? How do we get there? How do we do that? No, stop there and ask a question. Are you great? at discipling one other person. Because I can't ask my church to do something that I'm not willing to do. And as I've watched our church over the last seven years, we've grown to 2,000 people, we've planted multiple churches, we've got lots of disciple makers. Our last training, I can stand before you and say, I watched 250 intentional disciple makers in our church that know how to make a disciple, to go plant those kinds of churches. And I think when we do that and we commit to that and we don't try to outsmart ourselves and we don't get beyond it, we start to see miracles happen in our churches. We start to see communities change. But I'm telling you, it takes hard work. It takes a grit. I'm convinced that this church in America has become soft. We lost grit. Jesus says it's a narrow path. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. Not everybody's going to choose it. We have to understand and go, but you know what? As for me, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be obedient to Jesus' style disciple making. Because when we do, we change communities. We see churches multiply. We see miracles happen. For 87 days, I watched my daughter fight to get back to a goal she had of being a college softball player. And a year and a half after her accident, she she signed a commitment letter. The picture up there, that's her catching. This picture here, I got to take a picture of her when she was on ESPN catching against Georgia. All of us. If I could give anything, it's to inspire people to pursue Jesus' methodology of disciple-making 
like my daughter pursued getting back on a ball field. A grit and determination, not, not just for your church corporately, but for you personally. And I, I, don't, I don't know all of you in this room. Some of you may be absolute amazing at making disciples and praise God and keep doing it and, and keep after it. But if we want our churches to be different, we want our churches to begin influencing communities again to see the next generation raised up that know how to plant biblically strong churches. It's going to take you and I intentionally investing in their lives. It's not going to happen by accident. Here's my call to all of you. Make a commitment. Get a group of people and start investing in them. And you may sit here and go, I, I don't know how. Well, start learning. There's all kinds of resources around you. There's people around you that'll help you. That's why Bobby and discipleship.org and these organizations are there to help support this movement. Roll up the sleeves, get committed, and let's start seeing God do miracles in our churches. Thanks so much for listening to that episode with me, everybody. Up next, we're going to be hearing from Renee Sproles, and she's also going to be talking about intentionality in relationship with the people that we're discipling. If you like what you're hearing, please hit the subscribe button to the Disciple Makers podcast. I would really appreciate that so that you know each time that we release new episodes, whether it be from track sessions or special discipling conversation episodes in the future. All right, y'all, I hope that you enjoy the rest of your day. We'll see you.